Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of the book Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach, a sage publication. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars and workshops, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with chief information security officers. Dr. Chatterjee is Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia. As a Duke University visiting scholar, Dr. Chatterjee has taught in the Master of Engineering and Cybersecurity program at the Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series. Our discussion today will focus on phishing-resistant multi-factor authentication. Recently, CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, released two fact sheets highlighting threats against accounts and systems. CISA strongly urges all organizations to implement phishing-resistant MFA. MFA stands for multi-factor authentication to protect against phishing and other known cyber threats. I'm delighted to welcome George Gershaw, Chief Security Officer and Senior Vice President of Information Technology at Sumo Logic to share his thoughts and perspectives on this very important security subject matter. Welcome, George. Thanks for having me, Dr. Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. So, George, before we get into the details of multi-factor authentication, its strengths, weaknesses. Let's talk about you a bit. Please share with listeners some highlights of your professional journey. <laughs> You're going to make me blush. I've been lucky, Dr. Dave, to have had two different roles. The role to a CISO or CSO is a little different for everyone. I started off in the private sector, mainly in government contracting and then financial companies. And then I transitioned over to software where I held many roles from sales engineer to PMs. And then I settled into VMware twice, <laughs> which was a really good role there. And I co-founded the Center for Policy and Compliance and then eventually ended up at Sumo Logic, where now I'm, I'm lucky enough to serve and support a team called Risk, which is real estate, IT, security, and compliance. And I think that that's probably the biggest feather in my cap is working with a really good group of people at a really good company. Fantastic. And you have excellent credentials. I can't think of a better subject matter expert to talk about this topic. So George, to get the discussion going, I think it's only right to provide listeners with an overview of what is multi-factor authentication. Yeah. So multi-factor authentication is almost exactly how it sounds. Whenever you log into a system, you know, so for the layman out there, think about like when you log into your online banking account or even your cellular provider, it'll come back and say, is this really you? Either identify it through a captive, which is show me how many pictures there are of a tractor, <laughs> which is a very popular one, or punch in a code going out to either your cell phone or an email that verifies that that's really you. It's a very important second step to authentication and to logging into critical systems. Exactly right. So if I could recap what George just said, multi-factor authentication is a security technology 
that requires multiple methods of authentication from independent categories of credentials to verify a user's identity. The reason one uses the word multi-factor because one can get the credentials from different factors, such as what the user knows, example is password, what the user has, example a security token, and what the user is, example would be different types of biometric verifications, such as a retina scan. It's a very important part of the security protocol. It's part of a defense in depth strategy. So that's the good news that we have the technologies to enable multi-factor authentication. But unfortunately, like every other defense, even this defense is being breached by the hackers. A recently published article on dark reading reports that a massive phishing campaign targeting GitHub users convinced at least one developer at Dropbox to enter in their credentials and a two-factor authentication code leading to the theft of at least 130 software code repositories. Essentially, the perpetrators exploited the multi-factor authentication fatigue. George, your reactions? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, there was also examples with GitHub and Uber as well, too, recently. And, you know, as you mentioned, which is right on point, we have the technology to do it, but is it being implemented correctly? And in a lot of places, it's not even being implemented. I think what I want to start off with saying is that this shouldn't discourage anyone from doing multi-factor authentication. It's really important to do that as part of Defense in Depth, as you mentioned, but how you roll it out matters. It's People can just become numb to anything. And so what happened in all of those cases is the same thing. Someone just got a push to their phone, most likely, or to their watch that said, hey, do you approve of this login? And the natural reaction when you have to do that so many times, and especially because of regulatory compliance needs, is to go, yes, I accept without really understanding, were you trying to log into something? Like it seems like such an easy thing, but it's not. Because you can sometimes have to authenticate many times in one day. And so just like alert fatigue when it comes to Sims, it's the same thing. You sort of start ignoring these things when they get pushed over and over again. So the implementation really matters as well as executive buy-in, which you have to constantly get not only to roll it out, but then how you roll it out as well, too. Absolutely. In fact, you mentioned something. You said that many organizations don't even have multi-factor authentication. That begs the question, why is that the case? Is there a technology aspect to it, a technological complexity of having multi-factor authentication integrated into existing legacy systems? Is there a cost aspect to it? Is it very expensive? What does your experience tell you? Well, the first one is absolute laziness is really what it comes down to in the beginning is I don't want to disrupt my organization by having them go through this extra step. And it might seem crazy to you, Dr. Dave, and crazy to me, but especially like think about development organizations that are heavy, like with startups, like these developers do not want to take that extra step. So and sometimes executives as well, too. Do I really have to do this? I know it's a policy, but can't I get around this? And the answer should be flat out no in, under any circumstances. But you said something interesting, too, which is cost. The way you roll it out matters. Just to, to give you a, an example, 
So we use a traditional vendor, which is Okta. Okta is a really good company. They're well known in the space. However, to get a push code instead of just the push, you have to have a different enterprise type license. And so to be able to really roll it out correctly at some times is going to cost you more when you're dealing with one of the IAM vendors and they're not alone. So Duo, SailPoint, Ping, the list goes on and on. They do the same thing. They'll upsell when it comes to maybe doing the right thing, which is a little bit crazy, but it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, just using common sense, if I'm leading an organization or if I'm part of the leadership that provides oversight to cybersecurity, I do want to have the best possible defense in place that will protect the organization from phishing attacks, which is the most dominant form of attack. And talking about authentication methods, I myself, I was used to the the traditional authentication. Then I just sat up one day and I said, you know what? I need to go and visit every account that I have, and I need to enable multi-factor authentication unless the vendor has already enabled it. So I took that step, and I went through each and every account, and I did that at a personal level because I felt strongly about having that additional layer of defense. Now, do I suffer from any kind of an MFA fatigue? (laughs) Not yet. Not really. But again... To be fair and realistic, I can't relate to some of the examples that are being shared about people being bombarded by requests for authentication and then they are falling for it. So I can't relate to that. But from my own personal experience, I haven't felt the fatigue. And even if I had to several times review that or go through that extra step, I would because I am even more paranoid about ensuring that access is very secure. So I want to take that extra step. And if that requires a little bit of an inconvenience, it is worth it. So I have brought about a change in my own mindset. And I'm just curious to know from you, George, how our organizations are, do they think very differently? What are what are your thoughts? Yeah, Dr. Dave, so you bring up a great point, which, which I think is whenever you can help your employees the people that work for your company do something that only benefits the, the company, but benefits them personally, the better off you're going to be. And this is a great example. So very simple things like do not use the same password over and over and over again. That's hard for people to do, but they do it. But if they're going to do it in their personal life, they're going to do it at work too. So you have to like give them examples as to why that is such a horrible idea. Because if you compromise one password and you compromise it all over the place, we've seen examples of that for years. So basic ba- password hygiene. The second piece of that, when it comes to to rolling it out, like you said, a lot of people are like, ah, if I have the option to not do it, should I? The answer should always be yes. Take that extra step because until you felt the pain of having your identity compromised, it's a horrible thing because now you have like bank accounts and medical records. And those are the two things that most hackers go after is health and wealth. And it's going to really be disruptive to your life. So take a look at what's going on out there when that one extra step, that 30 seconds can benefit people so much. Now, you brought up something that I want to tap into as well, too, which is vendors. Do vendors force you to do it? So banking environments do, without a doubt. Cellular providers do as well, too. But here's the very interesting thing. Like for us, well, we're a security vendor, right? So we provide a cloud SIM, we provide observability and everything else, but we don't force our customers to leverage multi-factor authentication. Why? Because a lot of them would get mad. 
<laughs> it's a simple fact. I'd love to. I'd love to say before you log into Sumo Logic as a customer, you have to use multi-factor authentication and SSO. But reality is, is that we would get tremendous pushback in doing so. But I feel like sometimes it's worth it as a vendor to do that because then it shows that the vendor is starting to change your behavior for you to do the right thing. Like how cool would it be if you got in the car and you went to start the engine and the engine wouldn't even start unless a seatbelt came on? I look at it the same exact way. I am absolutely bewildered to hear this. You mentioned something about organizations being lazy. You mentioned something about organizations might get mad when the vendor is trying to push on to them multi-factor. Once again, if I was running the show or if I'm part of the team that's running the show, I would take the trouble of reading up on the expert guidance that is being provided by organizations such as CISA and trying to understand from where they are coming and then looking at my own organization and making that call that, is it worth the extra step? And I totally understand that balance between convenience and security. I get it. But having said that, I would strongly urge all listeners, their organizations, that if you have not enabled multi-factor authentication, please do so to the extent possible, feasible, but definitely move in that direction. It serves as a no-brainer. And we will get into the discussion of password-less authentication, because that's that'll hopefully be a more convenient approach. But we got to take the step first, and then other things can follow. I want to share a personal example that happened the other, uh, other day. I woke up at around 1.30 in the morning, and as is my habit, I was checking my iPhone for, me for messages, and I saw an alert from my financial institution saying that my password had been compromised and I should change my password. So I came downstairs to my office. I alerted my wife. We both came down and we realized that password we had used for several accounts. So I went through each and every account to change that password. And as I was doing it, I was wondering, oh my God, now what kind of inconvenience am I going to deal with? What's going to be the consequence of this? And like George, you said, I know people who have been victims of ID theft, and it's terrible what they have to go through. And I was just really worried that that's going to be my situation. So anyhow, I did the due diligence. I did change out the passwords, went back to bed. Next morning, I called their support and I asked them that I received this email. So what's the story? Fortunately, they told me, it was a technical snafu, and that email had gone out, gone out to millions, but my password wasn't compromised. Anyhow, that's a different story about their process and how they manage their process. They could have done it better. But however, that experience does bring to light what we are all vulnerable and susceptible to. But as humans, it is our natural tendency to assume Oh, it's not going to happen to me. Yep. <laughs> and if it does, we'll deal with it then. And I know that organizations also often have that mindset. Some organizations who know they will get bailed out. And I don't think that's an acceptable practice. George, <laughs> your thoughts. Yeah, yeah, Dr. Dave, you're exactly right. And it all starts at that executive level. You have to have board, executive buy-in, 
to, to make sure that not only you have the right policies in place to leverage complex password, continued password changes, SSO, and then MFA in place as well too. Like it's got to be buy-in from the absolute top, no exceptions whatsoever. Like for us at Sumo Logic, if a uh, developer creates like an AWS account, for example, and doesn't turn on MFA within 24 hours, that account's disabled. And, and that's the reality of what you have to do. Um, I do think that once people do have it put in place, you got to now take it to the next level. You know, so let's go back to where you were digging in a little bit, talking about MFA fatigue. It's a real thing. And I think that passwordless security, as you mentioned before, is going to be the future. Like my Mac right now, I can put my thumbprint, my my fingerprint to do biometrics. That's a very easy way to, to, to get around that would solve a lot of these issues. Another way is one-time passwords. So OTP, which folks like Auth0 made that very, very popular. But I'm going to bring up an interesting point because I'd like to get your thoughts around this as well too. One of the things that we've struggled with as an industry forever has been these questionnaires that people send out before they go do business with a company like Sumo Logic. And one of the questions is always, do you use MFA? And Think about the Okta compromise, which was so interesting because they are a single sign-on MFA company. When they got compromised, it was by a third-party vendor that checked the box and said they use MFA working for an MFA company and didn't use it. And so like now as an industry, we're starting to really try to figure out what's the best way to trust a vendor, trust a partner, and ensure that they're actually doing these things because it's so easy to check that box because they want your business, even though it's not the right thing to do. So Penalties have to start coming into place with a lot of these things. Unfortunately, that is true. Like I have discussed several times in my talks and also during these podcasts, that history tells us that organizations respond best to laws, laws with strong penalties. SOX is an example. So unfortunately, I, I do see a day not far from today when a major legislation will come down the pipeline requiring organizations to follow through with the recommended best practices, because that's the only way you will get real compliance. What's <laughs> happening today, as you, you shared with an, just an example of checking the box kind of compliance, trying to find a way of to get the contract, get the business. And I know this might sound idealistic and people will say, oh, you're a professor. That's what you do. You preach the ideal. I don't. I don't. But I will say this, that you have to be as security conscious as practical. Even when I was reading the CISA guideline, they are not being very idealistic. They are saying, we understand that it may not be possible to protect all the resources at, at once. Pick the ones that's most important. Find the users that are high-value targets. So they are they are basically suggesting an incremental approach to implementing phishing-resistant MFAs. So it's not like it has to be a big bang implementation and overnight we will achieve a hundred percent compliance. But at least there has to be a recognition and then follow-through steps. And as you rightly said, George, unless you get the buy-in from the leadership, from the top management, that it is a very important security defense, and it's not just one of those add-ons that is more headache than it is worth it, unless that buy-in is there, 
real Biden, where you really want to be secure and safe, not because you are being forced to, not because you want to project to the world how security conscious you are. You really believe it and you follow through with it. So I'm, I have emphasized this genuineness in literally each of my podcasts, even in my book, that at the end of the day, if you, if an organization as well as an individual, if they take genuine steps that comes under the category of due diligence and due care, and if they do everything, even after that, if they get breached, which is absolutely possible, they have a fair shot before the jury. I'm not a lawyer, but I've had the pleasure of talking with several legal experts. And I've been told that that's where the judge reviews what you've done. Have you done everything possible? Have you taken into consideration all the expert guidelines? Have you taken the best possible approach that is feasible given your resources? So there is a reasonable reasonableness associated with that review of the judge. So nobody is expecting that you do something extraordinary or go out of your way, go way beyond, way beyond your means. But there is an expectation to be responsible. And that's what I want to emphasize in this podcast, in this episode. The fact, I mean, it, it, there, there is. I mean, that's the cost of doing business, really. But we need to make it part of everyone's everyday behavior. When you leave your house, you close your garage door, you lock your front door. It is just things that come naturally to you. Like I mentioned before, you get in the car, you put on a seatbelt. It, it, it's those types of things that we have to make it muscle memory for people, period. There just shouldn't even be a question as to why it's being done. Now, back to what you mentioned about a staged rollout. I believe with rolling out MFA, you just do it. Like there, there is no stage to that for me. Now, when it comes to accessing sensitive data or critical users, you may, when you start using like OTP, one-time passwords and things like that, maybe you do focus on that first. And then start working your way through the rest of the organization. But MFA to me now is just a must. I mean, and especially as we move more into SaaS-based apps, working with large cloud providers like Azure, GCP, it's just a must. You have to have it turned on day one. And then that way, that muscle memory starts kicking into place. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, Tisa is also recommending that even if an organization doesn't have in place a phishing-resistant MFA, they should employ additional prevention and detection controls such as number matching. Yep. So that's that's the point that make the effort. This is a three-page guideline. It's very easily, very clearly written. It's literally, you can create a checklist out of this. Use the checklist to evaluate what you, what you have in place. And if you see any gaps, any deficiencies, address them. That's That's what I would call due diligence. And do that. And I think we are all better for it, organizations, their customers. So that seems like a no-brainer to me, but maybe it's not because otherwise they wouldn't have come out with this directive or with this guideline. Moving along to this topic of implementing phishing-resistant MFA. So would you like to expand on how does an organization go about implementing that type of an MFA that is phishing-resistant? What solutions are available out there? So the, the best one, I mean, look, there's one-time passwords, there's biometrics, and then there's 
also having to put in a passcode and punching that in, which by the way, Dr. Dave takes about 15 seconds, yeah, you know? Exactly. Uh, and I think that the last one is the most viable one because we live in this virtual world. So I'd love to say that it's biometrics, but what if I'm a developer and I'm trying to access servers that are all the way across the globe, right? I can authenticate into my system, but that's not going to work as I authenticate into more complex virtual systems. So although that's very effective with something that's physical and right in front of you, it doesn't solve all the problems. And so I think for me, it's and, and what we do is pushing that code. Hey, wake up. <laughs> You're not going to just press accept. You're actually going to have to look and see what this code is and then what it is that you were trying to authenticate into. And I think that that's the one that covers the most because part of this is emotional. Like we mentioned before, a lot of physical things like seatbelts, mm-hmm. locking doors, garages. We live in such a virtual world now. And putting the this kind of hygiene in place is more important than ever. I mean, just look at things like meta universe and everything else that's going on. I mean, even for like my kids, like when they log into video games, I've always had them do multi-factor authentication. It's a quick one-time code that you punch in. And I think that that's the best way to go. Now, again, there's going to be some costs probably associated with that, but I think we need to get better as, as a society saying, why are we paying these costs? And let's make sure we implement these around these critical applications, critical users, and critical data. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. So, George, I read about this FIDO authentication, the FIDO alliance, where they have developed this protocol to enable phishing-resistant authentication. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so they've been around for a while. So Fido, Fido, whatever you want to call them, they've yeah. been around for a long time. They started off in the beginning mainly with YubiKey mm-hmm. was a big one, which was something that you would just plug into your system that would verify you going on, and, and which it can be very effective. But at the same time, too, look, man, the technology changes. I'm on a Mac, and whatever I plug into my system is always different. What what kind of USB is it going to be? In fact, a lot of organizations you go to do business with, especially in a fintech market will not allow you to plug anything in to your system at all. So I think that they're on to the right idea and right concepts. And, and again, YubiKey can be effective, but you know, it also goes back in time. Like, like think about like when multi-factor authentication, two-factor authentication got started, it was RSA. And RSA, you would carry around on your keychain like this passcode that would revolve and change like every 30 seconds or every minute. And you had to punch that in. And now was it effective? Yes. Where was it disruptive? Well, when users forgot or didn't have that, that piece of hardware. So I'm not a hardware person at all. And I think that they've sort of leaned into that a little bit more. But if you are a company that that works for you, do it, Fido Fido, look at them. They definitely got some good guidance, but it doesn't work for a lot of us that live completely in a virtual world and we don't necessarily leverage hardware for a lot of different things. Good to know. Good to know. And just for the benefit of the listeners, Fido or Fido stands for Fast ID Online. You can visit their website, review what they have to offer. I was referencing a recommendation from the CISA guide here. So it might be worth your time to just take a look. I so, agree. so moving along, George, I'm again looking at our notes from our planning meeting that we had. You made a couple of very poignant statements, one of which is leaders should create a culture where employees feel they can slow down for the sake of security. Help kind of tie this to our discussion 
on multi-factor authentication. Yeah. And again, I mean, I don't mean to pick on developers, but I'm sorry, I'm going to pick on developers because that's usually where most of the resistance comes into play. You can have developers sometimes accessing, I mean, an organization like ours, I mean, we have 300 plus applications. And so if you start thinking about uh, what it takes to access those, well, we've made that pretty easy with single sign-on, meaning that I have one place where I, I authenticate, going through someone like an Okta, Ping Identity, Duo, whoever it may be. And then that allows me access to all those other applications. But again, if that password gets compromised, now I'm in serious trouble. Now, MFA coming across the top of that will verify that I'm actually that user, even if the password got compromised. Now, what happens typically with a developer, and let's go back to regulations. So regulations like FedRAMP, for example, they say that if a person is 15 minutes idle into an application, they have to re-authenticate. That's a lot of disruption when you think about I'm in 30 apps, 40 apps a day. Do I really got to re-authenticate into each one of those apps every 15 minutes? Probably not. The best way to do that, again, would be through something like VPN or SSO and do it at that later. If I'm idle there, I'll re-authenticate once and get back into them. Correct. But what typically happens is developers are moving at, trying to move at lightning speed to offer more services to our internal and external customers. And that's important, but it's not as important as making sure that seamless security is built into it. And so I think development cultures for years, and I've been working out of Silicon Valley since 2009, in that environment, especially, there's always this thing of, oh, security and compliance are going to slow me down and I'm not going to be able to, to innovate as much. And it's like, I'm sorry, but what would you rather do? Carry around a pager for when all of a sudden, whatever you develop, the code you develop gets hacked and you have to get read back into it and then help work with the company and lose your brand identity and everything else. Get regulation fines, like you mentioned before, go against CISA guidance, the new SEC cybersecurity guidelines, or take the time to put guardrails in place while you're working on code. The second one to me is a no brainer, but we have to get people there because it's still not. In fact, I'll give them to give Microsoft a big plug. Microsoft was one of the first companies because of the GitHub attacks saying, we're going to force developers now to use multi-factor authentication when they get into our public libraries, period. And I wow. applaud. I'm like, yes, that's good to hear. that extra step. JFrog should do the same. Docker Hub should do the same. Like all these public repositories should do the same thing. But there's just this perception of it's going to slow me down. And I'm sorry, sometimes you need to be slowed down. But what, what if we drove on the roads with absolutely no speed limits whatsoever, right? Like, well said. It would create all kinds of damage. So I just think that there's this perception, this emotional transition, Dr. Dave, that people have to make, and we have to help them get there. Well said. Very well said. <clears throat> when you say slow me down, you know what I was thinking of? Mm -hmm. I was thinking of a very deliberate approach to security. You know, often taking a step back looking at the whole picture and coming up with, with a very holistic cybersecurity strategy defense. It might seem like you're slowing things down by taking a step back, reflecting at everything, taking stock of where you are, where you sh should be. But in the long run, just like you said, it can avert problems which would really slow you down, which would really send you back in different ways, whether you have to fix a code or whether you have to address a reputational issue, or in the most extreme case, you, you may not have a business, you may not have a job. 
So I'm so glad you you have highlighted this slowing down business because we are in a culture where it's we are working at warp speed as fast as we can go. And we do not want anything to come in the way of efficiency, but we have to be a little more savvy about that. Speed mm-hmm. is not necessarily directly correlated with efficiency. So I think that's where some wisdom needs to kick in. There has to be a multi-functional perspective where leaders from different organizational groups, both from the tech side and the business side, needs to come together and make some calls which makes practical business sense as opposed to going with this kind of a notion, oh, at least exempt me from multi-factor authentication because I'm having to constantly sign on to different things and it's slowing me down. And like you said, well, you have the single sign-on option. Well, if that wasn't there, even then, I think it's worth the trouble. But going back to this multi-factor authentication fatigue, is it really a fatigue or is it being hyped up? What's what's the, (laughs) I wonder. Oh, I think it's a fatigue. I really do. I, I, I just think that human nature, we see something over and over again, and then we stop. Again, it goes back to muscle memory the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> we, we start yeah, just... just reacting to it. And again, like, like now it's time to pause and slow down. And one of my favorite stories ever, Dr. Dave, if you don't mind. Please. And, and our users can go back and look this up. There was a company, was a company called Code Spaces. And right around 2014 or so, they had their AWS credentials compromised. So when you have your AWS credentials compromised, like your master key, it's over for you. And so the hackers came back and said, hey, like give us like, I think it was like a million dollars in the next 24 hours or else we're going to bring down your company. And they kind of laughed it off and said, yeah, we're good. We're not going to give you a million dollars. And the company was out of business within 48 hours. If they would have taken the simple step, simple step of having multi-factor authentication, that would have never happened. It would have never happened with those credentials. Now, going back to MFA fatigue, what can we do? Again, I think you said something that was key that came out of the CISA guidelines as well, which is stage it out. Like if you're using multi-factor authentication today and you're using a push mechanism, which is very easy, again, it goes to your watch, goes to your phone, it can go anywhere. Take the time to understand the critical users, critical data within the environment to be able to come back in and say, let's run a one-time passcode when you're trying to access these things. It's going to take you an extra 15 to 20 seconds. That is not too much out of your work life to to punch in that code and start getting the muscle memory to get people to look at what they're actually authenticating. I'll tell you another thing people can do as well too. Yeah, when you're using logging systems like ours, you want it. People always look at is Doctor Dave logging in from California and London at the same time, and that's good information. But great information is. Okay, where's Dr. Dave logging in from, but where's the MFA push going and is there an MFA push? So then that way you can start recognizing the gaps. And if you really want to take it to another level, brute force attack, is there a VPN in between? So tech matters. And and, and this is like one of the arguments all the time is people are like, we have a policy in place. And I'm like, well, that's cool, but you need technology to back up the policy because people are people and people are going to try to circumvent things a lot of times if they know there's no accountability. Absolutely. In fact, 
you highlighted something that I wanted to get to, and that is the latest technological approach to authentication, which is adaptive authentication, mm. where machine learning is being used to understand user behavior, identify anomalies, and anomalous anomalous behavior then triggers a reaction, which could be you might be blocked from using your account because it seems you're logging in from a location at, a, at an hour that is not normal to your normal logging in behavior. So we have some great technologies that's out there. It's just a matter of seeking them out, searching for it. And you would do that if you really cared about, I want to get to the bottom of it. I want to get the best possible, the best in class authentication in place for my organization. And it really doesn't take that much effort or time. It just, it's a matter of making a mental commitment. And then once you set the ball rolling, and I'm talking about the senior leadership, and I'm not suggesting that they become multi-factor authentication experts, <laughs> but it's a matter of charging a team and saying, hey, I was just reading about adaptive authentication, passwordless authentication. Please connect the dots for me and tell me where we are, where we need to be, and how do we get there? Simple. And then once I get the recommendation, at least I'm informed, and then I I act on them. So that's kind of as simple or as complicated as it can be, but it is something that cannot be ignored. You gave a telling example of a significant loss incurred mm -hmm. because the company didn't have something like multi-factor authentication. So this has yeah. been a, a great discussion. Enjoyed your stories. But before we go, George, I'd like to give you an opportunity to share some final words, some key messages for the listeners. Yeah. So, so thanks for that, Dr. Dave. And I think the way to look at it is a lot of times security used to be looked at as a business inhibitor. Now it's a business enabler. People will want to do business with you when you have really good security hygiene in place. And especially as we're looking at supply chain attacks that we've seen over and over again over the last two years. So three major takeaways I get from our discussion. The first one is use SSO. Don't use the same password for everything and use SSO, please, to make life easier. The second one is don't stop using MFA, even though Dr. Dave and I talked a lot about MFA fatigue, at least implement MFA. And then finally, the third one is when it comes to critical users, critical data, critical systems, codes for MFA. So make people slow down a little bit, see what it is that they're approving and take that extra step. It's only going to be 15 to 20 seconds and then all of a sudden it becomes muscle memory and you'll definitely be able to secure your critical systems much better that way. Thank you very much, George. And I want to reemphasize what George just said. The intent here was not to suggest that multi-factor authentication is weak or doesn't work, quite to the contrary. Multi-factor authentication is extremely important. We are trying to encourage listeners, their organizations, to at least have the basic implementation, if not the more sophisticated ones. By that, we mean the more resilient forms of multi-factor authentication. George, thanks again for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Dave. The pleasure was mine. A special thanks to George Gerchow for his time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. 
The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.